In multiple interviews, Gremlins director Joe Dante has expressed open confusion as to how the film became as successful as it did. Uh, it's not that he lacks any professional pride in his efforts, uh, quite the opposite in most cases. Dante has repeatedly expressed that Gremlins is a weird little movie that largely reflects his personal tastes. He somehow convinced a major studio to finance an effects-driven picture that'd be the sort of thing that he'd have liked to watch personally, especially if he was a kid at the time. The fact that lots of other people connected with it came as a pleasant surprise to him. While I do think that Gremlins is pretty accessible for the most part, I can sort of see where Dante is coming from. Gremlins frequently indulges in family-friendly humor and it's toyetic as hell, but it's also crammed with dark comedy and gore. Christmas movies obviously get very saccharine and there are plenty of Christmas movies that get nasty for the purposes of mildly transgressive counter-programming. We've covered both of these types of movies on the podcast. But it's um, tough to find many movies that try to be both of these things at once. Gremlins wants to have its cake and eat it too. Oddly enough, I think it largely sticks to landing despite the tonal disparities. And despite Dante's reservations, both before and after the fact, Gremlins was a big hit and it's left a lasting influence on the entertainment industry. We'll be touching upon some of the ways that it did this throughout this recording. My name is Ryan, this is Real Deep Dive. Alright, joining me on this one is Rachel. Hello! This is your Christmas movie for the season. Yes, you picked it though. Yeah, I, I gave you a choice. I figured that like the horror Christmas movie was going to be your bag, so I was like, were we doing Gremlins or Silent Night, Deadly Night? And you hadn't seen Gremlins since you were a kid. So. Yeah, I hadn't seen Gremlins since I was a kid. I mean, and when I say kid, probably like 10 to 12 years old. I haven't seen it since I was that age. I mean, I still really enjoyed it. And my first exposure to Gremlins was not watching it. It was reading an article about the history of the PG-13 rating and how Gremlins was one of the movies that helped create it because of how, well, fucked up scenes in this movie. Yeah, we'll be getting to those. But first, I thought we'd give an overview for the history of the Gremlins. Well, I was generally a folklore and mythology nerd as a small child. I wouldn't be hosting this podcast if I wasn't, probably. <laughs> I didn't know much about gremlins going into this, and I was expecting the concept of them to be something that had, like, centuries of history, going back to, like, medieval Europe, and like, oh, this thing that keeps causing our castle to sink into the swamp must be the little folk. <laughs> And while gremlins do have obvious parallels to brownies, sprites, imps, leprechauns, and other little people of that sort, the term gremlins itself dates back only to the mid-20th century, which I found is something of a surprise. Yeah, I'd be, I'm surprised too, because that's very young for this sort of thing. During World War II, Royal Air Force servicemen would share sarcastic stories about little men who sabotaged the airplanes. The etymology of the term is debated. Folklorist John W. Hazen claims that it is derived from the Old English word gremion, to vex. Uh, others say that he is overthinking it, and that it is a portmanteau of goblin and fremlin, a brand of beer that was commonly available to British pilots at the time. Gonna go and have a pint of fremlin down at the pub, mate. I am not going to attempt a British <laughs> accent. Gremlins were first referred to outside of the military in Pauline Gower's 1938 novel, The ATA, Women with Wings, but they were popularized by RAF veteran Roald Dahl. 
You don't say. Yeah, one of his earliest children's books was 1943's The Gremlins, uh, a strong seller that became internationally known when Disney optioned it for an animated feature that never quite came out. Yeah, and I don't think I read a lot of Roll Ball as a kid. I don't think I read that one. Yeah, it's early. A comic spinoff of the doll novel was drawn by Pogo Possum creator Walt Kelly. I read those a while ago. It's it's okay, but it's very beautifully drawn. Bob Clampett directed a 1943 Bugs Bunny short, Falling Hair, heavily indebted to the doll book. It's basically one of the few ones where uh, Bugs Bunny is on the other side of getting messed with. Yeah, I remember being upset by that as a kid because, you know, Bugs Bunny always wins. Daffy Duck is the one that suffers. See, I love that one for that very same reason. It's like, yeah, how do you like it? I don't know. I feel like Bugs Bunny doesn't torment anybody unless they really deserve it. Like that one short where he makes like the musical baritone suffer during his concert. It's because Bugs Bunny just wants to sing and play music and the opera singer is upset that he is interrupting his performance and then he suffers. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Chuck Jones explicitly explained that he figured out very early on that Bugs Bunny needs to be provoked, otherwise he comes off as a bully. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know this means war! Dante wanted falling hair screened before Gremlins in theaters, just like, you know, the old days where he'd show cartoons right before movies, but uh, Warner Brothers refused for reasons I couldn't find. That's weird. You'd think it would work, but maybe it's because the Gremlins don't have, in this movie, don't have anything to do with airplanes. Well, they do sabotage electrical equipment throughout the movie. But not airplanes. Gremlins also famously pop up in Doctor Who, uh, the 1981 heavy metal film that we did for this podcast. (laughs) Yes. And the Twilight Zone movie, specifically the uh, Nightmare at uh, 10,000 Feet, which we also covered for this podcast. Mm -hmm. Dante worked on the Twilight Zone movie, but he directed the It's a Good Life segment and not the uh, Nightmare remake with John Lithgow. Okay, and John Landis, that's probably a good thing. Yeah, George Miller was on Gremlin Detail for the Twilight Zone movie. Nice. And with that out of the way, time for the plot recap. Alright, we open with struggling inventor Randall Peltzer, who visits a Chinatown antique store, hoping to find a Christmas present for his son Billy. Inside, Randall encounters a small furry creature called a mogwai. This is derived from the Cantonese word for demon or devil. The owner, Mr. Wing, refuses to sell Randall the creature. He says it's too dangerous, and only the very responsible can handle it. But his grandson just sort of sneaks out back and does so because they're desperate for the money. Warning Randall to remember three important rules. Do not expose the mogwai to light, especially sunlight, which will kill it. Do not let it come in contact with water. And above all, never feed it after midnight. Randall returns home to Kingston Falls, where he gives the mogwai to Billy as a pet. Billy works at the local bank, but he's in some issues right now because his dog Barney is being sought after by the widowed miser Mrs. Deagle, who blames it for destroying her Christmas decorations. Her Bavarian snowman. And she wants to kill him slowly and painfully. Yeah, she's basically the Wicked Witch of the West. Randall names the Mogwai Gizmo and is explained the three rules. When Billy's young friend Pete accidentally spills water over Gizmo, however, five more Mogwai spawn from his back. But these are a more troublemaking sort, other than the sweet and loving Gizmo. I know. Gizmo, he's just a little guy. He's got, you know, big, big eyes. He's round. He makes little noises. He's shaped like a friend because humankind is 
you know, meant to see circles and big eyes as being friendly because that's what babies look like. Now, the mean Mogwai, on the other hand, are led by a figure named Stripe. He is called, a mohawk. Yeah, called so for the little tuft of mohawky fur on the top of his head. Billy shows one of the Mogwai to his former elementary school science teacher, Mr. Hansen, spawning another Mogwai that uh, Hansen asked to keep for the purposes of experimentation. Back at home, Stripe and his fellow Mogwai trick Billy into feeding them after midnight by severing the power cord on his alarm clock. This causes them to form cocoons, as does Hansen's Mogwai. Nasty, nasty little cocoons. Yeah, he steals Mr. Hansen's sandwich. And then, once they hatch, they emerge as mischievous, dark green reptilian monstrosities. Covered in KY jelly. Who then torture Gizmo and attack Billy's mother, Lynn. That scene is probably the most terrifying in the movie. Mom versus the mean gremlin. We'll once again get back to that. (laughs) Hansen is killed by his gremlin. Ah, rip. Lynn and Billy are able to kill their gremlins, except for Stripe, who escapes to a local YMCA, where Stripe then jumps into a swimming pool, spawning an army of gremlins who wreak havoc throughout Kingston Falls. Many people are injured or outright killed by the gremlins' rampage, including Mrs. Deagle. She's introduced to be the audience-satisfying death. Okay, we want to really fuck me up that I noticed this time during her death, is when she sees the gremlin, she's like, oh no! Please, I'm not ready. It's like she knew she was going to go to hell. But the demons have come to take her away because it's where she belongs. Billy reports this to the police, but these are the skeptical police officers in, in the 80s movie, so there's no help whatsoever. And they, and they die. Contri- <laughs> and they contribute nothing, even after it's very obvious that the gremlins are there. And like they're, they're real. Just, yeah, they just watch a, a guy in a Santa suit get mauled to death, and they just sort of drive off all stuff in their faces with donuts. They're that kind of movie cops. <laughs> also, you know, real-life cops. Uh, as Billy rescues his love interest, Kate Berenger, who is... A bartender. She's, a Christmas hater. Yeah she, yeah, she was forced to um, serve the gremlins. They hide in the now-abandoned bank where Kate reveals to Billy and Gizmo why she hates Christmas. When she was nine years old, her father went missing on Christmas Eve and did not come home on Christmas Day. Several days later, he was found dead in the chimney while dressed as Santa Claus. He was planning to surprise her and her mother and accidentally slipped and broke his neck while climbing down the chimney. Okay, that, as a kid... Forget all the exploding microwave gremlins. This was the scene that freaked me out the most. More on that in a bit. Anyways, that's how Kate found out there wasn't a Santa. Hmm. Billy and Kate discovered that the town has fallen silent and that the gremlins are all holed up in a theater for the day, you know, because they can't expose themselves to sunlight, and they're watching Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. They like to see the little guy win. Yeah. Billy and Kate (laughs) set off a natural gas explosion in the theater, incinerating all of the gremlins except Stripe, who uh, had left to commandeer more candy at a convenience store across the street. As morning approaches, they follow Stripe into a department store, where Stripe attempts to use a water fountain to spawn more gremlins. This is thwarted when Gizmo opens a skylight, exposing Stripe to the sunlight and killing him. Yeah, he basically gets the, uh, you know, the Ark of the Covenant Nazi treatment. Ooh, he becomes goofy and nasty. Yeah, Spielberg was doing pastiches of his own work pretty early on. (laughs) As the local news reports on the day's mysterious tragedies, Mr. Wing reclaims Gizmo at the Peltzer home. He criticizes both the Pelters and Western society in general for their carelessness with nature. However, as he turns to leave, Gizmo, having bonded with Billy, bids the young man a personal goodbye. 
a touch Mr. Wing then concedes that Billy may be ready one day to be the steward of Gizmo, and until then, Gizmo will be waiting. One thing I noticed is that Gizmo calls Mr. Wing Baba. He's like, Dad! <laughs> All right, for the history of this, uh, screenwriter Chris Columbus came up with the Gremlins idea roughly at the same time he dreamed up the Goonies and young Sherlock Holmes. He credits the legions of mice scurrying behind the walls of his shitty apartment while he's going to film school with giving him the light bulb moment. Oh, yeah, that definitely... Creepy little buggers yeah, everywhere. That, that tracks. Columbus wrote Gremlins as a spec script. He didn't think that he was going to sell it. He just wanted mm-hmm. to like practice his writing and show other people that he could write on a professional level. But the spec script got into Spielberg's hands, and impressed with its originality, he bought it along with The Goonies and Young Sherlock Holmes. Warner Brothers fast-tracked Gremlins when they realized that they had no competition lined up for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Ghostbusters. Two other incredibly important 80s films. Yeah, 1984 was a big year for uh, well-regarded 80s movies. Shit, you're right. Tied up with his own projects, Spielberg elected to produce Gremlins and have another person direct it. Uh, The first person that came to his mind was Tim Burton. Spielberg was fond of his early stop-motion animated films like Vincent, but Burton hadn't done a feature yet, and Spielberg felt he was too unseasoned. Dante first caught Spielberg's eye when Piranha, which Spielberg considered to be the best of the many Jaws knockoffs, debuted. (laughs) That's high praise from the man. (laughs) Further impressed with Dante's Twilight Zone contributions, uh, the clincher was The Howling. Uh, Spielberg really loved that one. The Howling was tremendously successful for an 80s horror movie, but the studio that released it folded before Dante was paid. He was essentially down to his last hundred bucks when he got the Gremlin script in the mail. And uh, he was astonished at this lucky turn and initially suspected that Spielberg sent it to him by mistake. Oh no. Fake it till you make it, my man. Columbus's script went through several revisions to make it less nasty, however. Initially, Billy's mother was killed and decapitated during the Gremlins fight. And Ah! Billy arrives as, like, they're bouncing her head down the stairs like a slinky. Yeah, it's like Gremlins. Can we say it's a kid's movie? I think it's one of those very, like, uniquely 80s movies where it is very consciously marketed to children while slipping in all of this other stuff. Not unlike Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Ghostbusters. What about, like, Robocop? There are Robocop toys that movie is fucked. Yeah, it's like one of those things where, like, if your parents aren't paying super close attention (laughs) to you while you're watching it, you can put it on and it kind of feels like you're getting away with something. Spielberg is particularly savvy with this sort of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Another thing is that in the first drafts, Gizmo transforms into Stripe rather than spawning him. Spielberg was the one who insisted that the two characters become separate characters. He felt that the cute, cuddly Gizmo would be a highly merchandisable figure in the E.T. realm, especially if he was more of a good guy through and through. Yeah, merchandising, merchandising. Sorry, I watched Spaceballs recently while I was doing laundry. (laughs) Scenes where the gremlins eat Billy's dog were vetoed. <laughs> I'm sorry, but like, once you kill the dog, you're in deep shit. And there was also a scene where the gremlins break into a McDonald's and devour the patrons, like putting them in hamburger buns. That's... Hmm. Well, they already had a product placement with Burger King, so... <laughs> oh, so you couldn't, you can't have that now if they're doing Burger King, but that does seem like a little too much product placement for me. <laughs> 
Just about every studio head wanted to cut the monologue where Kate describes her father's accidental death while dressed as Santa Claus. It's fucked up and it's never brought up again after that scene. Spielberg agreed with the studio heads, but Dante felt that the scene was the thematic heart of the film and refused to cut it. In, in what way? It's about little fuzzy creatures and commercialism. Do well, we take Christmas too seriously that a guy would crawl down a chimney and die trying to impress his wife and kids? I, th I think Dante's argument is that it's about how the holidays can make you feel jaded. Eh, I guess so. But that's like, that's not being jaded. That's like real, honest to God, trauma. Yeah, I guess he's taking seasonal affective disorder and just cranking it up to 11. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, Spielberg agreed with the studio execs, but he realized that Dante wasn't transient, felt that Gremlins was Dante's project, and sided with him, and the scene remained in the film. The part where Dante argues with Spielberg was recreated and parodied in Gremlins 2. <laughs> Alright, now it's time to get to the casting. First we have Phoebe Cates as Kate. Uh, She's nice and pleasant. Warner Brothers was opposed to Cates, thinking that uh, the Kate character was supposed to be a sweet, wholesome, all-American girl next door. At this what, he wasn't? At this point, Cates was best known for risque parts and teen sex comedies, particularly known where she opens her bikini top in Fast Times at Richmond High. I've never seen that. She does a topless scene in that, and it's like one of those infamous, horny teenagers in the 1980s kept rewinding that part of the video over and over again. Oh boy. Anyways, Dante and Spielberg really liked Kate's chemistry with Galligan during auditions, insisted that, yeah, okay, she showed her tits in one movie, but she can still play wholesome. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And both of them went to bat for her. Good. Kate does feel like that she's just sort of put in the movie because the protagonist needs a love interest. Yeah, but she's nice, though. And uh, one of the reasons why I think that the Santa Claus monologue should have stayed in there is because it gives Kate something. Some sort of existence outside of being Billy's foil. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a good scene. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's bad because it freaked me out as a kid. I think it's good that it freaked me out as a kid. It is something that I retained with me, like even more so than the Gremlin mayhem. That Same. yeah, that, that scene does uh, linger. But yeah, I'm glad that, that she's there and she got to do something. And um, if you Google her, you see her tits and fast times at Richmond High. But also, hey, she's in Gremlins. I knew her because she's married to Kevin Klein. All right. Next up, we have Zach Galligan as Billy. Judd Nelson and Emilio Estevez auditioned for this, but Spielberg really liked the way that Galligan interacted with Kate's in the audition. They auditioned together. Like, there was this scene where, like, he sort of rested his head on her shoulder and was like, aw, he's in love with her already. Aw, that's sweet. Galligan said that Kate's coached him. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, she said, yeah, you need to do these little gestures. It adds depth and characterization. Like, hey, I'll, I'll put this dust mode on you and then flick it off. And that insinuates that there's intimacy between us. Hey, put your head on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. And hey, good work, Kate. You got Galligan the gig. And I think he's fine as the, as the anchor of the film. Considering his relative youth, he didn't come off as grating like a lot of child actors can. Yeah, the one thing that you pointed out that he that um, you've got Corey Feldman in here as like a kid and they're still friends and he's like clearly like out of high school, maybe out of college, working at a bank. Like when do they make the decision to have him be a grown man and not a little boy with his pet? Was that just too much E.T.? 
<laughs> if he I, had been a little boy. Based on what I could find, it's because they like the way the Galligan and Kate interacted, and they just decided to age both the characters up, I guess. That makes sense, okay. Speaking of which, Corey Feldman is Pete. This was his first major role. Feldman was cast in E.T., but his uh, character was removed, so I guess this was a consolation prize for him. You get to be in a movie with other little weird-looking guys. <laughs> this was Feldman's first major role. Uh, he had done mostly commercials up until this point, so I guess this is what launched him at the stardom, although that ended up being a bit of a poison chalice, if you know anything uh, about Feldman's he, background. Yeah. I was like, poor little guy. As Rachel already intimated, Billy was initially envisioned as a younger character, which is why this random 12-year-old kid is his best friend in Gremlins. He's like a big brother figure to him. Well, they only really have one interaction where they're like talking about comics and stuff, and then Pete dumps the water on Gizmo and it reproduces. And then later on, you're seeing Pete fighting off Gremlins, and you don't know if he survives or not. And that's the end of Pete. He's probably fine. He's resourceful and he's a kid. Yeah, kids in Spielberg movies tend to make it out on the other side okay. Alright, uh, next we have Hoyt Axton as Rand, Billy's father. While he did have a script to work off of, he ad-libbed almost all of his lines. He has a very, like, rumbly character actor voice. Yeah, he does, and he knows he's playing an archetype, the bumbling inventor type. Mm. There's all these, like, failing gadgets around the house that ends up becoming something of a running gag, and really... Useful for killing gremlins. And, like, 60% of them are there to, like, lend gremlins a family-friendly atmosphere that it just keeps pivoting away from. One memorable gadget was the faulty juicer, which Dante revealed was still in his possession. Nice! Uh, might have sarcastically offered to sell it during the height of the pandemic. He said that it would come with a certificate of authenticity, NFT, whatever the fuck that bullshit is. Non-fungible tokens. Stupid as hell. They were all the rage amongst the worst people on the internet a year ago, and they already crashed and burned. It is hard to find a pyramid scheme that flamed out faster than NFTs. <laughs> you don't understand. Crypto's with it where the future is, bro. That's what they were saying six months ago. Uh, anyways, oh. it, yeah, it turns out that they were like Beanie Babies or Death of Superman. Yeah, but at least Beanie Babies, you can cuddle. You could also cuddle a Shaquille O'Neal rookie card if you wanted to. You can try really hard, I guess. Anyways, Axton got some of his rustic dialect from his long career as a folk singer. He's probably best known for writing the Three Dog Night hit, Joy to the World. Why Jer not? Yeah, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Then we have Polly Holiday as Ruby Deagle. Dante considered her the best get for the supporting cast. Yeah, she's a real bitch. Yeah, and she's best known for saying kiss my grits, but she is the most seasoned out of anyone in this film. Mm -hmm. She's clearly a lifer. She's like, oh, okay, so I'm playing the Wicked Witch of the West, except they don't get to do the witch stuff. I'm all right, whatever, as long as the check clears. No, she's just a mean, mean old lady. She's mean to the poor, and she's greedy. She's the figure of capitalism here that is not the gremlins. She's bad capitalism. Yeah, she named all her pets after various forms of currency in case it wasn't that clear. I know, my God. Alright, speaking of getting shafted, Judge Reinhold is Gerald Hopkins. Uh, his character was initially a much bigger part. Yeah, he's just there for like two scenes to be a creep. Yeah, he creeps on Kate in order to make Billy look less shitty, and then he disappears after that. He doesn't even get killed by the gremlins. Yeah, I was like, I feel like I've seen him play an asshole in like five different 80s movies. 
Gerald was initially supposed to have an uneasy partnership with Billy once the gremlins emerged that would gradually grow to mutual respect as they battled the monsters together. This was trimmed out for time and also just the telescope plot points. Yeah, I feel like you get that sort of emotional beat from his relationship with Kate. And that kind of reminds me about how in early drafts of Hot Fuzz, Nicholas had a love interest in the village, and eventually all of her scenes were scrapped, and a lot of her dialogue and emotional beats were just given to Danny. The one bit that Reinhold got to keep in there was that uh, he accidentally flubbed uh, Shake and Not Stirred when he gave his drink order. Dante <laughs> decided to keep it in there because he thought that it made Gerald seem like more of a smarmy douche. Honestly, yeah, why not? All right, then we have uh, Frances Lee McCain as Lynn Peltzer, Billy's mom. She is mostly remembered for playing an 80s mom. Uh, Man, she... you could make a career out of that, being an 80s mom. You know, at least nine years worth of. She was <laughs> Kevin Bacon's mom in Footloose. She was Leah Thompson's mom in Back to the Future. <laughs> Those were comparatively smaller roles, and then she gets to waste some fucking gremlins. I know, honestly, she's a real final girl. She fucks up lots of those gremlins. And she doesn't even, she doesn't scream and like hit them. No, she puts those little motherfuckers in a goddamn blender and then blows one up into nasty, nasty gremlin juice in the microwave. And yeah, Billy gets it from her because as soon as he comes in, he takes the Chekhov sword that's been falling off the wall through the first act. And he's like, got that? Yeah. <laughs> During the first two scenes, they're like, oh, the sword from the wall came down. Let me fix it up there. Just to remind the audience that it's there. And it's real. So yeah, Billy can go fuck up a gremlin alongside his mom. After that scene where she acquits herself against the monster men as she kind of ducks out of the film, because Gremlins is a, it's a tight movie. Once that bit's established, they're just right off to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, Dick Miller as Murray Futterman. This gentleman was a B-movie character actor. He has the longest IMDb page of anyone on this list, although most of the time he's playing like drifter or bartender or something like that. Hey, you know what? He probably could always pay his bills. Yeah, he was <laughs> part of the Roger Corman B-movie assembly line, and hey. that's where Dante met him, because Joe Dante is a graduate from the University of Corman. Dante used him in Piranha. He just kept casting him and stuff. I was like, yeah, let's have you be like the uh, crazy veteran guy who rants about gremlins. Why not? Yeah, he eat he, off of those rolls. Yeah, and he's one of the few people in the movie that gets killed by the gremlins just outright, and he just gets nailed by that snowplow. I know, he and his poor wife. Alright, uh, Key Luke played the grandfather figure. He uh, also has an incredibly vast IMDb page, although he does have a couple of more substantial roles. He's the original voice of Brack on Space Ghost, for instance. I don't know what that is. Oh, yeah, I guess you were a little young for uh, Space Ghost Coast to Coast and Adult Swim. Yeah, sorry, I'm a 90s baby who was only allowed to watch PBS for a big part of my childhood. Well, okay, um, Space Ghost is a Hanna-Barbera superhero who would, you know, fly through outer space and fight bad guys. And then in the 90s, they used recycled footage of Space Ghost to make him a talk show host where he'd interview <laughs> random-ass celebrities, but they'd ask the celebrities different questions and then redub Space Ghost dialogue. It was very absurdist. Okay, that actually sounds kind of cool. If it's 11 at night and you're kind of high, Space Ghost Coast to Coast is a good time. I mean, that was my experience watching um, Aqua Teen Hunger Force at 4am in college. 
Anyways, Luke was 79 at the time of filming Gremlins, but he still had incredibly youthful-looking skin, so they had to give him old man makeup. Yeah, I would have clocked him at, like, 60. Alright, then we have Mushroom as Barney the dog. Oh my god. Honestly, let's be real. Mushroom is the real star of this movie. Forget Gizmo. It's the dog. He's awesome. He's cute. He gets to react. He's like, hey, look, I'm gonna pretend this puppet's real. Sniff, sniff, sniff. It's kind of like how uh, John Carpenter said that Jed the Wolf Dog, who played The Thing, was one of the finest actors he ever worked with. Yeah, Mushroom is also the dog in Pumpkinhead. Good for him. Dante said that Mushroom is the best actor in the film. <laughs> and he also said whenever he was stuck in the first act, especially, if he didn't know what to cut to, he would just do a reaction shot of the dog. And that is very easy to notice once it's pointed out. That dog does a lot of heavy lifting. But you know what? It's always the right answer. You know, even, if you, even if people don't like dogs, they like animals. Indeed. Speaking of the animals, uh, Howie Mandel was Gizmo. Uh, Frank Welker, his name just keeps coming up. Of course. Yeah, he was Stripe. And amongst other people, Michael Winslow and Jim Cummings were among the various gremlins. Mandel got the job because Welker recommended him. Just about everything that the gremlins and the Mogwai quip was improvised on the spot while they were recording the overdubs, which isn't hard to believe, but... No, it makes sense, though. Yeah, even then, you know, it makes sense. You know, Gizmo going bright light, bright light, and all that. Bright light, bright light, bright light! You know, honestly, the one thing that... It's like, I know you have to have willing suspension of disbelief. You know, why are I, but if some, if my dad showed up with, you know, freaking Stitch, I'd be like, you know, what the hell is that? That's not a dog. That's a guinea pig meets a monkey. And what is it doing in our house? This is also a bit that was lampshaded in Gremlins 2. <laughs> All right, well, I need to watch Gremlins 2. I am in the camp that thinks Gremlins 2 is better than the first one. Anyways, on top of that, we have cameos from Spielberg. He gets a little Hitchcock cameo. Yeah. He's riding a bicycle. Mm-hmm. I would not have realized that was him unless you pointed it out to me. Jerry Goldsmith, the composer, is the dude in the phone booth. Yeah, I love Jerry Goldsmith. Chuck Jones is the bar patron who critiques Billy's drawing. Billy's uh, uh, yeah. artistic ambitions was a much bigger plot point in earlier drafts of the movie. Yeah, I kind of have the feeling that that was the case. Dante's a big Looney Tunes fan, if that isn't obvious from Gremlins alone. <laughs> and then uh, there's also a bit where Robbie the Robot throws yeah. some lines out. Not only did they bring in the original robot, they brought in Marvin Miller, his original voice actor. Yeah, I was like, is that Robbie the Robot? And you're like, yes it is, that's Robbie the Robot. And I'm like, wow, he really shows up a lot in the movies we watch for the podcast. <laughs> Gremlins was shot on the Universal Studios and Warner Brothers backlots at Dante's insistence. That's why I was like, this kind of looks like the one from Back to the Future. And you were like, it is the one from Back to the Future. (laughs) Dante felt that the only way that the ridiculous premise of Gremlins would be accepted by the audience is if the movie was filmed with deliberate staginess and Hollywood artifice everywhere. Special effects supervisor Chris Wallace suggested that they use puppets when stop motion proved to be too expensive and time consuming. It would have looked really cool, but yeah, it would be very time consuming. There is one stop motion scene where the Stripe and the other gremlins are just sort of like marching through the streets before they start fucking up vehicles and electrical equipment. It's neat. Warner Brothers pushed for using spider monkeys in gremlin suits. (laughs) This turned ugly. (laughs) 
when a trainer placed a gremlin mask on a spider monkey in Dante's office. The poor animal panicked, tearing up the room while throwing its shit everywhere. Once the monkey was removed, Dante turned to Wallace and quipped, So, puppets... It's like it's one thing to put a dog in a costume because dogs are so easy to please. But a monkey, a monkey has a mind of its own. (laughs) It made me think of the Jaws episode where apparently Universal Studio executives were like, so can you train a shark? (laughs) No. No, No. you cannot train a shark. Uh, No, and and you know what? I'm glad that they're puppets because I feel like if they made gremlins today, they'd be some fucking CGI monstrosity that, you know, the gremlins, the Henson Law, they look real. They feel real. Even if he is kind of puppety, I believe I could pick up Gizmo and my brain would still be like, he's real. He's my little baby. He's my friend. I have to, you know, not feed him. Dante has expressed similar things, and Galligan did as well. He said he had no problem interacting with the puppets. It's, it was essentially, as he compared it to, meeting a woman for the very first time, and then you're on stage and you have to pretend that you've been married to her for years and you know her intimately. Yeah, I, I just think that uh, there recently was an interview with a bunch of the E.T. cast members on Drew Barrymore's show, and she said that as a little girl, she believed that E.T. was real. And, be, and once Steven Spielberg realized that she believed that E.T. was real, he always made sure that there was somebody operating him at any time between takes. Apparently, Tiny Drew Barrymore went up to the costume department because she thought that E.T. was cold and he needed a scarf. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> That being said, building and operating the animatronic puppets proved to be an arduous task. A lot of the mechanisms were being developed on the spot. Another callback to Jaws. (laughs) Yeah, but you can't hide the gremlin the way you hide the shark. Yeah. Each puppet cost about $30,000, so security examined everyone's bags at the beginning and the end of each day to ensure that nobody stole one of them. Okay, that part blows my freaking mind, but they were like 30 grand each for every single one of those little bastards. In 1984 money, no less. 1984 money. That's probably like, what, 100 grand now per puppet? The rule about bright lights killing the gremlins was added more or less on the spot during the shoot because Dante felt that the puppets looked really shitty when they were fully lit. <laughs> so Be putting, magic. Yeah, putting them in darkness kind of helped sell them, at least according to him. The gizmo puppet in particular would constantly break down, which frustrated cast and crew to no end. The bit where Gizmo is trembling on the dartboard while the gremlins throw darts at him was not in the script. Dante put that in there because he felt it would be cathartic to the puppeteers. (laughs) I love it. Also, the bit where uh, Stripe attacks Billy with a chainsaw was apparently just sort of like added in at the last moment because Dante thought it was cool. It is. Fur-covered balloons were used for the scene where Gizmo multiplies, you know, so the little gremlins could expand. Mm -hmm. The balloon was also used when Lynn explodes the gremlin in the microwave. Yeah, didn't you say that it was originally a lot nastier? Like, the gremlins, they have green blood, which helps you get away with a lot of violence, not red. 
but it is still pretty nasty watching him explode. Spielberg asked them to reshoot the scene to make it less gory, and the scene that's in the movie is pretty fucking gory, so I don't know what the original looks like. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. He just, he's there, and then he's just liquefied. Spielberg's visits to the set were largely motivated by putting more emphasis on Gizmo. He felt that Gizmo was the real star of the movie. As much as I love Mushroom as Barney, he's right. It's Gizmo. Everyone remembers Gizmo. For instance, the death of Stripe was supposed to be caused by Billy and Gizmo lifting the blinds together. Spielberg had Billy's contribution removed. Yeah, it's Gizmo. He's driving a little Barbie car, you know. <laughs> yeah, on the on the DVD commentary, Dante and uh, Galligan are talking about it, and Dante quips, so guess who had Billy's contribution to the death of Stripe removed? And Galligan's like, I'm not going to guess because I want to work with him again. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> Spielberg was also on set for the scene where Billy and Kate kiss each other. Galligan was nervous about Spielberg's presence until Dante assured him that Spielberg was there mostly to make sure that Gizmo was in the shot. <laughs> yeah. when, when asked about their chemistry on set together, Kate said, it's like, yeah, kissing Galligan was like kissing my brother. I felt no sexual tension whatsoever. Uh, they still have a cute little romance, though. Yeah. The music for the film was by Jerry Goldsmith. Very obviously, because, you know, Jerry Goldsmith did a lot of music for Star Trek, so I was like, my boy! I do think that uh, Goldsmith has more range than certain other iconic composers, like you can tell it's Danny Elfman in three notes. Same thing with John Williams. No offense, as much as I love John Williams. But yeah, Goldsmith also did Planet of the Apes. That doesn't sound like Star Trek. Oh my god, no way! But yeah, uh, yeah, this definitely has Goldsmithisms, and Goldsmith is a very much old school composer who writes in that operatic streak where there's you know lead motifs and all that. Whenever he is underscoring the gremlins menacing people, it is in your face. It's a fun score though. I, I really like it. I've listened to his uh, Wrath of Khan just in the background while I've been writing a few times. It's good. Yeah, this is not going to be the last time we talk about Goldsmith on this you podcast. Anyway, for the release and reception of this film, trailers and TV spots showed very little of the Gremlins and focused mostly on Gizmo. This implied that Gremlins was an E.T. clone, more or less, and it is not that. No, it's not a heartwarming story of, you know, a boy and his alien god. I have not seen E.T. since I was five years old. It's definitely not a take-your-kids-to-see-this-movie movie. It's not an E.T. movie. No, because E.T. gets blown up in the fucking microwave. <laughs> Gremlins was released the same week as Ghostbusters, which made you think that, you know, Rip. Ghostbusters was going to fucking bury it. Yeah, I would have thought that, too. But no, it didn't. Gremlins made $12.5 million on its opening weekend, which put it in second place, but only by less than $2 million. That's pretty good, because here I was thinking of just watching Slimer fuck up E.T. Not E.T. Gizmo. <laughs> no, no, Gremlins gave Ghostbusters a run for its money. Ultimately, Gremlins took its $11 million budget, which isn't nothing, but was considered fairly low to mid by that period, and it made $212.9 million. Pretty good. It was the fourth most successful film of 1984, trailing only Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and Beverly Hills Cop. So again, 1984 is a pretty yeah. big 80s movie year. Exactly. I feel like that's pretty good. 
I was a bit surprised to discover that contemporary reviews were largely positive. Gremlins is a horror movie, and critics usually don't like those. Because they're dumb. A lot of critics saw uh, Gremlins as a sly subversion and transgression of the films of Frank Capra. I don't really see that. I feel like that's just too much of a stretch. Well, Capra is directly referenced in the film twice. It's a Wonderful Life is playing in the background, mm-hmm. and um, the student film that uh, is being played in the uh, in the health and science class. Capra directed it. Oh, neat! <laughs> but it doesn't have like all of the same. I don't know themes in there of like family, community, self-deprivation for the greater good that I feel like It's a Wonderful Life has. I do believe that there are moments of gremlins that show, like, that naive populist optimism that Capra is known for, and then they're just like, now these little shits are gonna come here and ruin it. And a crossover where Mr. Potter gets killed by gremlins. Yeah, I mean, Deagle's obvious comparison point is the Wicked Witch of the West, but there's some Potter oh in there, God, too. Oh my god, yeah, there really is some Potter in there. See, yeah, 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 I'm winning you over. Okay, yeah, fine. There is a deleted scene where Clarence appears to Mr. Potter and tells him he's going to go to hell, basically. (laughs) (laughs) There was some criticism for Gremlins' violence and grim subject matter. Also, I do think that is one of those things that was bait and switch in the advertising, kind of like Batman Returns. And like, hey, it's a Batman movie. Take your kids. By the way, there's a whole lot of S&M in this thing. I think so, for sure. Like I said, my first exposure to this movie was the history of the PG-13 rating because, you know, the kitchen scene with the gremlins and hell, we're talking about movies that came out in 1984, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is pretty gruesome. Like, I remember thinking it was one of the most gruesome movies I'd ever watched when I was a kid. Yeah, I was around 12 or 13 when I first saw Gremlins, which is probably the right age. Same. I was around that age, too. Maybe, like, maybe 10 or 11, I think. Facing similar criticism for the violence and racism in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, (laughs) Spielberg suggested that the Motion Picture Association of America, the ones who does the film ratings, add a new rating designation between the PG and the R. The PG-13 was created less than six months after Gremlins debuted. I mean, some people balk at seeing the uh, PG-13 as a direct response to Gremlins or Temple of Doom, but I, I think it's pretty hard to argue that it isn't. Yeah, but I I do feel like you need to have, you know, we could have a whole podcast episode just talking about the rating system, but I do think that there needs to be, you know, a little bit of a middle ground. Sort of like, I remember when Revenge of the Sith came out and it was such a big deal that it was PG-13. But you know what? That movie does have some rough stuff in it, and it's kind of good if you're, you know, taking a small child to be aware of that, like... My cousin, he must have been like nine when he watched and he had nightmares about Anakin burning for like a few days afterwards. I do think that the current MPAA system is better than the Hayes Code, but... Yeah, fuck the Hayes Code. I, I still have reservations about it, but that's another episode. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Gremlins, its success meant that you got a whole lot of knockoffs. The 1980s is populated with films such as The Ghoulies, Hobgoblin, Munchies... Critters and Troll. Charlotte and I talked about Troll 2 on a prior episode of this. They're gonna eat me. 
Yeah, Troll is a different, completely unrelated film, and Troll 2 is pretending to be a sequel to it, but we discussed that on the Troll 2 episode. <laughs> the Scottish post-rock band Mogwai are named after the film. After years of trying to get a sequel made without him, Warner Brothers convinced Dante to direct Gremlins 2 The New Batch in 1990. Given total creative freedom, Gremlins 2 is a metafictional satire of how the film industry poisons creativity by insisting on things such as unnecessary sequels. Dante structured it after the madcap 1940s musical film Hell's a Poppin', which is definitely worth checking out. We might do an episode on that. Sure, why not? Gremlins 2 got very positive reviews and is currently a cult fave that many, including myself and also Dante, argue is superior to the original. But it was a box office failure upon its release. That's too bad. Dante said that, you know, Gremlins 2 is closer to his heart, but he still gets residual checks from Gremlins, so... (laughs) You know, 40 years later, that's pretty good. Gizmo and Stripe have cameos in, among other things, the Lego Batman movie, Space Jam A New Legacy, and the video games Lego Dimensions and Multiverses. In a couple of weeks, we are getting the CGI animated series Gremlins Secret of the Mogwai. That is going to be an HBO Max exclusive, assuming that the heads of Warner Discovery do not yank it, even though it's already done. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yep, this is going to be a very timely podcast episode. Yay! Merchandising! Where the real money from the movie gets made. Alright, that brings us to themes. And Rachel already teed me up for it. First thing I wanted to bring up was commercialism. He's a toy. Gremlins does have populist criticism of avarice and ambition, only with the cartoonish, over-the-top characters like Deagle and, to a lesser degree, Hopkins. This sort of thing always makes me think of stuff like how racism is depicted in stuff like Green Book or Driving Miss Daisy. It doesn't really ask or challenge audiences to... Yeah, crash. (laughs) It doesn't really ask audiences to examine internalized bigotry. You know... It's something other people do. It comes off as like, as long as I'm not a foaming-at-the-mouth Klansman, then everything I do and say is hunky-dory, more or less. I'm not just, like, overtly out there doing Nick Fuente shit. And that sort of comes across it as, like, yeah, Gremlins is telling you that, you know, the greedy Mrs. Deagle is bad, but uh, then it's filled with all the shameless product placement of neoliberal institutions that are constantly litigating to make us overproduce to the point where we're poisoning our own planet to the benefit of the handful of people at the top of the pyramid. And the movie doesn't really criticize his dad. His dad is the most, like, money-happy person in there. He's a failed inventor, which is usually a sympathetic character, you know, and he doesn't listen to Mr. Wang at all when he says, you know, this is not for sale, but, you know, he's American. He's a white man. He can buy whatever he wants. And for a failed inventor, he just has $200 to throw around? Yeah, I know. I mean, I know he's a failed inventor because, oh, it adds some character depth to him, but... I don't know. I feel bad for his mom having to be a homemaker to that guy. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, it's a single income and they can still afford a house, but that's just 1984. Yeah, 1984. Homer Simpson has, can afford a house, two cars, three kids, a stay-at-home wife with a high school degree. <laughs> there is some back and forth about Homer's vocation, like... 
a nuclear safety inspector in, I want to say 2015 money put, takes home about 70K a year usually, which- You um, could do it, it'd be tight. I mean, it'd be tight in this part of the country. If you were in other parts of the country, you'd be living pretty. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Gremlins is a hyper-capitalist film made by a hyper-capitalist director. I think there's nobody who's more of a populist promoter of neoliberal ideology in Hollywood than Spielberg. He's got a touch that nobody else has, especially people who are imitating him. I mean, I know that Fableman's movie is bombing hardcore. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. If you look at Spielberg's career trajectory, he does have bombs, but you can count them on one hand. Okay, well, what are some of his bombs? I mean, 1941, yeah, but I, I would argue that that is a cult classic, and we should do an episode about it. It failed at the time, but uh, yeah, the BFG also flopped. Everything else made a profit. Like, nobody has a better at-batting average than Spielberg. And yeah, the, the next thing I wanted to bring up, uh, which comes up fairly often in criticism of Gremlins, is its racial underpinnings. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I'm white, so my opinion doesn't mean shit, but I feel like the Asian characters are just, are like this close to being stereotypical. Like, they, they could, they're, they're toeing the line. Yeah, one thing I didn't mention when I, when I brought up Key Luke is that, mm-hmm. aside from Gremlins, his most well-known role is in the Charlie Chan movies. Mm-hmm. He usually played number one son. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Charlie Chan is one of those characters where they hired a white guy to uh, do it in yellow face. Those movies are pretty painful to watch. Mm-hmm. But they were popular at the time, and it took a very long time for Hollywood to treat its Asian actors with dignity and actually have Asian characters played by Asian actors. Mm-hmm. Makes me think of an argument called uh, presentism, where uh, somebody positions that you shouldn't be judging people of the past by the standards of today. Mm-hmm. It's commonly thrown against people who criticize, like, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson for preserving and promoting slavery, especially when they are forming the government. Mm-hmm. And I can sort of see where it's coming from, but at the same time, it's not like slavery was an uncontroversial subject back then. There were people arguing against it. The reason that Jefferson wrote so many polemics saying that Africans were subhuman and deserved to be pack mules was because there was pushback against his very decisions to do that. Yeah. Yeah, John Adams said that uh, America needed to deal with slavery now or else we were going to have a war over it in a hundred years. Yeah, he wasn't that far no, off. No, he was not far off at all. But yeah, the people who are saying that presentism is wrong in that specific instance are also very much a-okay with promoting the Founding Fathers as these sinless, mythological, idealized God figures. And I would say that's an even grosser version of presentism. Yeah, there's that painting, the apotheosis of Washington. Oh, yeah, yeah, where, yeah, he is created as a, as a Greek deity. But, yeah, getting back to Hollywood, like, mm-hmm. even back then with the Charlie Chan stuff, there were people pushing back against it. Like, when mm-hmm. Gone with the Wind premiered, there were African-American civil rights groups that were protesting the film for promoting an idealized version of the antebellum South that marginalized and dehumanized them. So this sort of thing was never gone. It's just that as time passed, these marginalized groups were more able to voice their reservations without fear of retaliation from the power structure. 
But, uh, yeah, it's more than just how Asian people are depicted in the film, which, you know, isn't great, but better than a lot of contemporary films at the time, like Big Trouble in Little China. A number of people have found parallels between the Gremlins and minstrel show characters. I don't think that that was done on purpose. But the, the stereotype can be so ingrained that you don't realize that it is. There is a lot of blackface in Gremlins' DNA if you look far enough. Minstrel shows were the core of American theater for over a century, and it has seeped into a great deal of our comedy. Um, mm -hmm. People often point out that the white gloves worn by cartoon characters were very much rooted in minstrel show costumes. It gave you a narrative shorthand like, this is a silly character. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that. See, you learn something new every day about history. <laughs> Gremlins owes a lot to Looney Tunes, Chuck Jones cameos in the film, and Looney Tunes is straight-up animated vaudeville. There are a lot of parallels between the Americanized version of vaudeville and medicine shows and minstrel shows. There is a lot of overlap in the forms of comedy and that were practiced in all of those. So, yeah, there aren't any easy answers to acknowledge the painful elements of our beloved pop culture fixtures. If you look at any trope that is older than, like, a generation, you're going to find some fucked up shit there. Mm -hmm. I mean, that doesn't mean that you can't explore it or celebrate parts of it. I mean, there are people who do interesting things with H.P. Lovecraft, and uh, I do think that those things are valid, and I don't think that we should expunge Lovecraft from the historical record. Yeah, Color Out of Space, starring Nick Cage, is a really good movie, and it would have pissed off H.P. Lovecraft because the two main characters are a woman and a black man. And not to mention Lovecraft Country. <laughs> but, I mean, there are instances where the traces to minstrel shows are very obvious. Like, you know, the crows and Dumbo. Can't really throw accusations of presentism at that. Yeah. But, yeah, there are other things that enter into a moral gray area. Like, you know, the, the buffoonish gremlins. Uh, once again, I don't think Dante or anyone on set thought that they were going to, like, slyly put one over on us. I don't yeah, think that that's what they were going for. I'm not going to use the name for them because I'm not sure if it's actually, I think has a slur in it and I'm not saying one of those, but they don't look like that toy. You know the toy I'm talking about, the little, like, the doll that causes trouble and mischief that's a minstrel toy. They don't look like the toy. There isn't any, like, overt stolen iconography from that toy. Which at that point, if you were, let's just say, a kid in the 50s and 60s making gremlins in the 80s, you may have played with one of those dolls. Tales from the Hood 2 has a really good short where one of them comes to life for revenge. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we keep getting back to whenever the subject comes up. Once again, I, I don't believe in historical revisionism. I don't believe in historical erasure. And I think that whenever a subject like this comes up, the only thing that we can do is to talk about it openly. Yeah, and also Ryan and I are super white, so you shouldn't be. <laughs> do your own research and listen to people who are not glow sticks. Yeah. <laughs> Another point I keep reiterating, if I'm the first person who brought this subject to, to your attention, don't let me be the last. Yeah, please. Please, we are not qualified. Okay, that is the end of my notes for Gremlins. Is there anything that you would like to add before we wrap things up? Hmm, I, I don't know. I, I just think that I really appreciate practical effects. The Gremlins, they look real, especially the scene where they're trashing the bar. 
Like, they have little personalities, little stories. They're all not, like, the same. Even the guy know? hanging off the ceiling fan, the one yeah. with 18 cigarettes in his mouth. So there's there's a gremlin who's a, who identifies as the lady gremlin. She's got lipstick on and a wig. She's not as sexy as the one in Gremlins 2. Oh, they had to make a sexier one. Does she have gremlin titties? Not quite. <laughs> not. We can if if, if we do yeah if we do an episode on Gremlins <laughs> two we can argue about our Gremlin titties there. Okay. Yes. Don't give your female monsters titties. Just make her look as hideous as possible. It's my advice when you're designing monsters. So that's all I gotta say. All right. On that note, thanks for listening. Join us next time. <laughs>